Christ. Matthew 10:37 Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In the summer of 1740, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon exclusively to the children in his congregation, those from ages 1 through 14. Picture the great theologian preparing in his study there in Massachusetts, considering what to say to the six and eight and ten-year-olds in his church. The sermon, as he prepared it, covered twelve small pages with his fine, flowery, handwritten script. The top of the first page simply read, To the Children, August 1740. What would you expect the greatest theologian in American history to say to the kids in his congregation? Here was Edward's main point. Children ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. He took as his text Matthew 10.37, which in his King James Version read, He that loveth mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. It was a short sermon, taking perhaps 15 or 20 minutes to preach. In it, Edwards lists six reasons that children should love Jesus more than anything else in life. The first is, There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances, one that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does does as much exceed the love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in this world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness toward their children, but that is no kindness, kindness compared to Jesus. The first thing out of Jonathan Edwards' mouth in exhorting the kids in his church to love Jesus more than anything else is the heart of Christ. And in this sermon and throughout his writings more broadly, Edwards takes us in a different direction than Goodwin and other theologians have tended to go. When Edwards talks about Christ's heart, he often emphasizes the beauty or loveliness of his gracious heart. Look again at what Edwards says. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Human beings are created with a built-in pull toward beauty. We are arrested by it. Edwards understood this deeply and saw that this magnetic pull toward beauty also occurs in spiritual things. In fact, Edwards would say that it is spiritual beauty of which every other beauty is a shadow or echo. Throughout his ministry, Edwards sought to woo people with the beauty of Christ. And that is all he is doing with the kids in his church in August 1740. Later in this sermon, he remarks, Everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in him. For he is man as well as God. And he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, 
and every way the most excellent man that ever was. Any possible loveliness is in Jesus, because he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, excellent man that ever was. This language of Christ's meekness and humility are the very way Christ describes himself in Matthew 11:29. In other words, it is Christ's gentle heart that adorns him with beauty. Or put the other way, what most deeply attracts us to Christ is his gentle, tender, humble heart. In our churches today, we often refer to the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Interesting. You think that's, what would you say, attracts you to Christ the most? Is it his gentle, tender, humble heart? I think that's true. But what is it about God's glory that draws us in and causes us to conquer our sins and make us radiant people? Is it the sheer size of God, a consideration of the immensity of the universe, and thus of the Creator, a sense of God's transcendent greatness that pulls us toward Him? No, Edwards would say, it is the loveliness of His heart. It is, he says, a sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the wills and draws the hearts of men, a sight of the greatness of God in his attributes may overwhelm men, but seeing God's greatness is not our deepest need, but seeing his goodness, seeing only his greatness, the enmity and opposition of the heart may remain in its full strength, and the will remain inflexible, whereas one glimpse of the moral and spiritual glory of God and supreme kindness of Christ shining into the heart overcomes and abolishes this opposition and inclines the soul to Christ, as it were, by an omnipotent power. We are drawn to God by the beauty of the heart of Christ. When sinners and sufferers come to Christ, Edwards says in another sermon, the person that they find is exceedingly excellent and lovely, for they come to one who is not only of excellent majesty and of perfect purity and brightness, but also one in whom his majesty is conjoined with the sweetest grace one that clothes himself with mildness and meekness and love. Jesus is exceedingly ready to receive them. Given their sinfulness, they are shocked to find that their sins cause him to be all the more ready to plunge them into his heart. They unexpectedly find him with open arms to embrace them, ready forever to forget all their sins as though they had never been. In other words, when we come to Christ, we are startled by the beauty of his welcoming heart. The surprise is itself what draws us in. Have we considered the loveliness of the heart of Christ? Perhaps beauty is not a category that comes naturally to mind when we think about Christ. Maybe we think of God and Christ in terms of truth, not beauty. But the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty, 
just as the whole reason we care about effective focal lenses on a camera is to capture with precision the beauty we photograph. So it's saying like like a camera, you want like a good lens so you can see, so you can like capture the clarity of the beauty. And they're saying like sound doctrine. Doctrine is like the principles of what we believe. They're saying it's important to have clear, true beliefs because that will help us to see God's beauty clearly. Let Jesus draw you in through the loveliness of his heart. This is a heart that upbraids the impenitent with all the harshness that is appropriate, yet embraces the penitent with more openness than we are able to feel. It is a heart that walks us into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. It is a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to his feet in self-abandoning hope. It is a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreacting, never excusing, never lashing out. It is a heart that throbs with desire for the destitute. It is a heart that floods the suffering with the deep solace of shared solidarity in that suffering. It is a heart that is gentle and lowly. So let the heart of Jesus be something that is not only gentle toward you, but lovely to you. If I may put it this way, romance the heart of Jesus. All I mean is, ponder him through his heart. Allow yourself to be allured. Why not build into your life, unhurried, quiet, where, among other disciplines, you consider the radiance of who he actually is, what animates him, what his deepest delight is. Why not give your soul room to be re-enchanted with Christ time and again? When you look at the glorious older saints in your church, how do you think they got there? Sound doctrine, yes. Resolute obedience, without a doubt. Suffering without becoming cynical, for sure. But maybe another reason, maybe the deepest reason, is that they have, over time, been won over in their deepest affections to a gentle Savior. Perhaps they have simply tasted over many years the surprise of a Christ for whom their very sins draw him in rather than push him away. Maybe they have not only known that Jesus loved them, but felt it. We can't close this chapter without thinking about the children in our lives. Jonathan Edwards told the kids he knew there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. How might we, in our own way and time, do the same? What is it that the children whom we greet in the hallways of our church need? most deeply. Yes, they need friends and encouragement and academic support and good square meals. But might it be that the truest need, the thing that will sustain and oxygenate them when all these other vital needs go unmet, is a sense of the attractiveness of who Jesus is for them? 
how he actually feels about them. With our own kids, if we're parents, what's our job? That question could be answered with a hundred valid responses. But at the center, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is a shadow of a greater love. To put a sharper edge on it. To make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. Our goal is that our kids would never, er, that our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that their sins and sufferings repel Christ. This is perhaps the greatest gift my own dad has given me. He taught my siblings and me sound doctrine as we were growing up, which is itself a sore neglect across evangelical family life today. But there's something he has shown me that runs even deeper than truth about God, and that is the heart of God, proven in Christ, to friend of sinners. Dad made that heart beautiful to me. He didn't crowbar me into that. He drew me in. We, too, have the privilege of finding creative ways of drawing in the kids all around us to the heart of Jesus. His desire to draw near to sinners and sufferers is not only doctrinally true, but aesthetically attractive.